discussion with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get into the book of the week, um, for this week, or from last week that I'll talk about tonight, this week's book of the week is Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Born a Crime Stories from a South African Childhood by Trevor Noah. Um, maybe many of you recognize him from The Daily Show. Uh, actually, I, one of the few shows I watch almost every night is that show, so I'm a big fan of his and wanted to read his book. And um, I did want to include at least a few authors during February in Black History Month that were um, African-American, or in this case, South, like I said, is African-American. Um, but also throughout the year, of course, it will always try to have diverse uh, authors that are producing great work. So I'm um, looking forward to reading this book, which I think is about his life growing up in South Africa and coming here. Trevor Noah, Born a Crime. Um, we'll share that with you next week. The book I'll talk about tonight is Gender and Our Brains by Gina Rapone. Gender and Our Brains, How New Neuroscience Explodes the Myths of the Male and Female Minds. And a really good book. It was on the longer side. Um, and so I had this for a couple of months, but I wanted to make sure I had a good week where I could devote the time to finish it, but it was a very um, interesting book looking at the research that we have on the brain and also this ins insistence that male brains and female brains are very different, but also it goes back before even we could really measure the brain very well or they were always trying to figure it out, um, but how much it reflects the biases that we already have that... Uh, especially the men who were the scientists doing the research and doing this quote-unquote scientific work were proving that women brains were inferior. And you might recall the book last year that I read called Inferior that was looking at uh, the history of science of women and how women were seen to be inferior to men, but really it was more proving what the people already believed rather than genuinely being science. And actually, um, Gina Rapone, the author of this book, was quoted in that book and interviewed for that book. And so in this book, she's a neuroscientist and she talks about the history of some of the research on the brain as how it relates to sex and how people have been looking for these differences um, between the male brain and the female brain and poking holes in a lot of that research and science. And you could see, um, sometimes we can laugh at the earlier science where they were pouring bird seed in skulls and measuring how much uh, bird seed and saying, well, the bigger skull meant bigger uh, brain meant smarter. But then, of course, whales and other animals have much bigger brains than us. So we know that you can't just go by the size of the brain. Other things matter as well. Um, but the misconceptions continue and people continue to look for 
big differences between male brains and female brains. And I should make it clear, the author, Gina Rapone, does not say there are no differences. Men and women are exactly the same in every way. But she is pointing out that a lot of the research that has been done is uh, not really rigorous or has a lot of problems with it. So sometimes they'll exaggerate differences or differences are interpreted in certain ways. I mentioned this analogy last week. If you're looking for something, you'll see it even if you're counting something. So if I give you a deck of cards and say, count this before we play, if you um, count 52, you probably won't question that and you'll go forward. But if you get 51 or 53, you'll be like, oh, wait a second, let me count it again because it's something you are not expecting. And so science, we often see this on top of not just the data collection, but the interpretation of things can very much be biased by what people want to see, expect to see, hope to see, um, and what they believe is already true. So science as a method is seeking the truth and is supposed to be objective. But when human beings are doing science and we have our own biases and expectations, those get influenced and can affect the work that is done. Um, so there's lots of research talking about the articles you might see, and there's a whole chapter on things like she calls it neuro trash, um, where you see a lot of articles that get a lot of attention because they seem exciting. You know, proof that women can't read maps or men and women think differently. Research now proves it. And a whole bunch of other um, things, and she lists some of the funny ones or talks about some of the interesting ones in the book. Um, but very often there's a few things going on. One is, of course, the researchers themselves have their own biases and might be making some interpretations or looking for things in the data that aren't always there. But then also journalists at time, especially online, are trying to get in a very attractive and exciting headline. Sometimes we call that clickbait, but this is not just some um, small websites, New York Times and other big um, publications have made these types of uh, exaggerated claims to um, these studies to make them sound more interesting and people click on them okay proof that sex is like chocolate in your brain and then so people click on these things but the proof isn't so clear and sometimes again the researchers themselves don't say that and then also sometimes it's being exaggerated to make an exciting headline and so she shares a lot of these different stories and it makes you become more aware and a more um, prudent consumer of these things. It's very fun and interesting to see an article that says, oh, this is proof that men do this and women are good at multitasking. You're like, oh yeah, you know, women are so good at multitasking. I always knew that. Let me read this article or just read the headline and I already know it's true. So we have to be a little bit more um, conservative and mindful when we're reading things that people post a lot of things. People can write articles that make it seem very clear certain things. People sex sells, but also talking about sex in this way, male and female also sells. People get interested in these types of articles. And so as exciting as they might be, as appealing as they might be, we have to be cautious when we are looking at these types of articles. Or all the, the science um, articles that you might see very often can be biased in a way to make you more interested or excited and oftentimes the claims are exaggerated in the article to make a good headline and sometimes if you read the article further you'll see some things but even sometimes you still don't another issue with 
most research when it gets published in non-academic you know, websites, publications, is that when you do research, you'll talk about statistically significant differences. And that what this means is based on the way things were measured and based on the statistics that were applied and the, the different decisions the researchers made, there was a statistically different, um, the, the differences that were found would not be expected to happen by chance. Let's say five out of a hundred times or uh, one out of a hundred times. So it makes you think that this is not a difference that's just by chance. Uh, but it doesn't mean necessarily the difference is something significant. So if you get a lot of people and you measure how much coffee they drink and you say we want to see how this relates to GPA and if you have a lot of people you might find that oh having more coffee is a higher gives you a higher GPA but when you look at it you see that for every cup you have it's a 0 0.001 boost in your GPA so maybe they could find a difference in the statistics but it doesn't actually mean in real life the effect is something significant and so sometimes that will happen in the research too they'll find a difference but the difference doesn't mean very much or shouldn't have a big impact. If I tell you that on average men are slightly better at this than women, it doesn't necessarily mean if you're hiring someone, you should definitely choose a man because of this. It might be that there's such a slight difference that really um, it doesn't amount to very much. Uh, another big point she makes in the book, which is very interesting to me because I hadn't seen it presented this way, and partially, I think, the title, Gender and Our Brains, is that she first introduces the concept of plasticity. So even I remember when I was first in college, there was always this notion that you are born with a certain number of brain cells, neurons, and after that, the brain is pretty much fixed. There's development, and of course, prenatally and for babies, and then different stages you might have some but really that's it whatever you got is what you got and that's all you're gonna have um, now there does seem to be some indication that there's neurogenesis some neurons can be uh, could be I guess come to life or could be developed later in life but more importantly than that the plasticity of the brain meaning that there can be changes in the brain that happen based on experiences based on what happens uh, to the person who has that brain. So a brain is not just something static that once it's set, it's set in the skull and doesn't change. It actually uh, can have a lot of things that happen to it over time, big impacts. And there's been studies that can be interesting looking at, for example, uh, London taxi drivers, and they have to pass a test called the knowledge. And they learn, I think it's like 25,000 roads and different landmarks and things that they have to be able to memorize in order to become a London taxi driver. And they notice changes in the brain of these individuals that relates to um, things like locations and things like that. I, I'm not saying the right parts of the brain and that part is not necessarily significant, but we do see the brain change. And also they've done studies, for example, with juggling, where they will have people measure their brain, then they'll uh, teach them to juggle or have them practice juggling for a few months. And some parts of their uh, brain related to movement and hand-eye coordination, you'll see changes that take effect. So we know very clearly that the brain gets impacted by its experiences, by what it does, by what it doesn't do. Uh, and over time, this can have big impacts on the brain. And so she introduces, or at least was an introduction to me, 
this point that when we're looking at differences between male brains and female brains, along with the other issues that I've already brought up, we also have to be aware of the fact that because of the world we live in and because of the world these male brains and female brains are in, that is going to impact those brains and those people. It's not just that whatever you see is because of um, how different they are in some innate, essential way. The impact of the environment is going to have uh, tremendous effects on the brains of these individuals. So, for example, if you find that boys are better than girls at some spatial skills, well, if you find out boys are playing much more Legos and much more video games than girls, this is going to impact your results. And so we have to be aware of the gendered world we live in, and that's um, a lot of what the later part of the book is about, is seeing these different impacts that, for example, um, people have talked about how there might be a confidence gap, that men in general have more confidence and belief in themselves. So if there's a job opening, a lot of times men, even if they're not qualified, will apply for the job, whereas women who are qualified or will not apply until they're overqualified because they're not sure they will get it. And um, as is always the case, it could be easy to blame the women for why do they not have more confidence in themselves, but it's reflected in the reality that men do get jobs at times that women wouldn't. They actually have done studies where they just change the name John and Joan when they present uh, an application and they see that people respond better to John than to Joan, even though everything else on their resume is exactly the same. So um, have we made a lot of progress when it comes to sexism? Of course, but do we have a long way to go even in places like the United States? Absolutely. And so uh, we have to be aware that males and females are living, although in the same world, are exposed to different uh, environments. I'll talk more about the book after the break, but before I go, um, even I was realizing and I've thought about this before, the ways we treat, because she talks about it's not just kids, but even from babies we start treating them differently. And she talks about blue and pink, um, and even the cover, there's blue and pink on it. Uh, I was thinking about how I interact with babies or even little kids, and I thought about how when it's a baby boy or a young boy, I might call them buddy. Like, hey, buddy, and then play with them. But with a girl, I might say sweetheart or something else that's more... Uh, a little bit different than Buddy, right? So there's clearly a different way of interacting in this small way, but that shows that there's different ways we view and interact with these children that's going to have an impact on them. And people will play more rough with a boy and uh, play different types of games that they play with a girl. So all these things have an impact from a very young age. But I'll, I'll talk more about the book because there was so much in it um, about how we can think about male, female, how we tend to just assume there's so much difference when maybe there isn't, doesn't mean we're the same, but maybe we're not as different men from Mars, women from Venus, maybe we're both from Earth. Uh, there's a chapter in the book that kind of has a title like that. But anyway, let me talk more about this book, Gender and Our Brains by Gina Rapone. After the break, we'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm going to continue the uh, discussion on gender and our brains by Gina Rapone, a wonderful book. Uh, highly recommend 
you check it out, as I mentioned, it's on the longer side compared to some of the books I'll talk about, about 360 pages or so, but very good read, getting into a lot of the research um, about brains, neuroplasticity. She talks about the study of the brain and how that's evolved. And actually another point on that I talked about um, in the last segment, how there's a lot of articles out there that people read and they think, oh, this proves this about men and women or about other things, not just about men and women. And we have to be cautious when we're reading those articles. A lot of times people try to have attention grabbing headlines, clickbait, um, and just try to make their stories sound more interesting than they are. Sometimes the researchers are doing that, but also sometimes um, it's the journalists and the people writing the articles that are trying to make it a little bit more interesting. But even what we have to be aware of is uh, when it comes to brain imaging, when we see these images, and she talks about it in this book and other books have talked about it, um, the new mind readers, I think it was Poldrack, I forgot if it was Ross. Uh, anyway, but it, it, there's this notion when we see these images of the brain that accompany these articles that we're seeing something so real that, look, the brain is activated here and it's back there. This is telling us exactly something. But the data is a lot more fuzzy than that. And even when they're making these images, a lot of decisions are made um, or have to be made in order to make it look a certain way. And sometimes it's not a very, it doesn't look as crazy as it might look to us when it's so different. Maybe it's not that different. And even she talks about how initially radiologists, because they're the ones that read x-rays professionally or that's their focus, they were approached about how to make these images of the brain when they're... Uh, publishing them. And they actually said they shouldn't use different colors the way we're so used to seeing it now, because that makes it seem too different or more different than it is when the activity levels are not so much. And I think they pre they presented more an idea of like black and white or gray, basically different va variations of gray rather than these bright colors, but the bright colors grab more attention. But also, again, they make us think we're seeing things in these brain images that really are not so clear-cut. And also, the advancements that have made been made in neuroscience are amazing. You know, before they really could only look at dead brains, essentially, which, of course, uh, would not tell us so much. Now they can look at the brain in real time, but still, it's not this thing where, okay, now we know exactly what the brain is doing and we understand it completely. There was this great hope that because of the new brain scanning technologies, things like fMRI, we were going to be able to figure out the brain completely so soon, but it's been a few decades and we're not there and that's okay, but we have to be realistic. And of course the scientists do, but we also as the readers and consumers have to be aware that we shouldn't expect so much or think that because they have brain scanners or these, what we might call a brain scan, it's going to tell you so much about the brain, um, about differences, about various things. There's still a lot of work to be done. I think neuroscience is an awesome field. Of course, you, if you listen to this show, you know I talk about a lot of neuroscience books, but we have to be aware of what can and can't be done. And sometimes articles can make it seem like very definitively something is being proved when really that's not the case. It's not so clear cut. I also wanted to mention or share this quote she has at the beginning of the book from Stephen J. Gould. Few tragedies can be more extensive than the stunting of life. Few injustices deeper than the denial of an opportunity to strive or even to hope. 
by a limit imposed from without, but falsely identified as lying within. And to me, that last part was very important, of course, relating to this book. Um, people that are being limited uh, by a limit imposed from without, but falsely identified as lying within. And so this uh, reminds me of also when I talked about Angela Saini's other book, Superior, and the research that's done on race, that sometimes there's this mindset that, okay, well, certain races are superior to other ones. Let's prove it. And then if the um, one group doesn't achieve what other groups do or has some um, issues, that's because of something inherent to them, not being aware of the external factors that are hugely uh, the cause of what's going on. So we see that with women as well, that there's ways that we tell them um, or science is proving, which is not true, that they are not as smart in certain ways and then they don't perform as well. And we see, see, it's obviously because they're not as smart. It's being proven or it's supporting those notions. But we have to be aware of how much those myths and how much those things that we are being told as a society affect us. And one way this is reflected is in something that's called stereotype threat. So what this means is that performance can be hindered or affected negatively by a certain stereotype that is triggered or brought up in us. Um, and maybe I can explain it with an example better than I'm giving a definition right now. So for example, there is a lot of um, talk where people will assume that women are worse at math than men, that men are better at math. This is something that some people will again say it's something innate, even though we haven't really found that thing. Um, and so when women are going to take a math test, if they even have to check their sex, male or female, by checking female, we see that they do worse than when they don't have to think about their sex at all. So just the notion or being made aware of their sex and thinking that this means I'm worse at this will negatively impact their performance. And I believe other research has been done. For example, they did it with Asian American women. When they were asked to mention their sex, they did worse. But because there is a stereotype that Asians do better at math, when they were asked to just put their race and to put Asian American, they actually performed better, something called stereotype lift. So um, it's quite remarkable. And I remember when I heard about stereotype threat, I remember being in UCLA in the social psychology class. I was quite fascinated by it because it just seemed like something so subtle could actually have an impact on performance. So it wasn't that they told them, hey, you're going to do bad on this test because you're a woman. Uh, it was just that it would be brought to their own attention. And so we can even see in the brain, it seems that their minds are occupied in other ways, which makes sense. Anytime we do worse because of um, anxiety or different things that we're dealing with, it's because in a way our cognitive resources are not fully on the task at hand. If while I'm performing, I'm thinking about, oh gosh, people are going to think I'm bad at this, or um, I'm not very good at this, or if I do bad on this, it's going to reflect poorly on me. Of course, I'm going to do worse at the task. And this is what we see in so many different ways of performance um, where someone does worse because of their anxiety. Uh, recently, I talked about social anxiety and how, of course, if you're thinking about getting judged and how People are going to think you're this or think you're that. Of course, you're going to do worse in the social interaction. And so in a way, it can feel like you're confirming that you're not good um, at socializing when really it's more the anxiety getting in the way. So we can see that the 
things that we take as a given that men are this way, women are this way, that women aren't a good as good as certain things is going to affect their performance. And then unfortunately, if they perform less well or not as good, we're going to assume it's proof that we were right. And so we see this in the sciences where we have uh, less women that is expected to be in the sciences and people are at times confused about this. And even she talks about there's a paradoxical or it appears to be on the surface a paradox as to why in cultures where it seems like men and women are more equal, do we have even less representation of women in STEM? Um, that's science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, jobs and degrees uh, or people in school. And they, so they were, they were confused by this. But one suggestion that has been made is that usually those cultures also have uh, more prosperity, meaning that the women might have more of a choice. And so they might choose not to be to go into those fields because they're still, I think as she calls it, a chilly environment in the sciences against women. And this is still a very strong notion that's even held uh, the president of Harvard, I think he was the president of Harvard back in 2005, Larry Summers, is that his name? But he, he made a speech where he basically was saying in a way, uh, essentially, that women were not cut out. It was not some kind of issue of um, sexism. It's just that they weren't as good. They're not as brilliant. And she talked about that throughout the book, that it's assumed that men are more brilliant than women. And there's even a, a hypothesis about this, the greater male variability hypothesis when it comes to intelligence that says that even if on average men and women have the same IQ, um, what you see is that men have more variance. So you see more on the lower scale who would qualify for things like mental retardation, but then also more on the genius side as well are going to be males. And so this was something that I'd heard it a lot as well, and I, I took it as almost a fact because I'd seen it in different books and things. Um, but when I looked at what she talked about in this book and then I researched it a bit more myself, I saw that there's um, a lot of debate about this and in a way, this has been proven, I shouldn't say proven, but there's a lot of data to support that it's not true, that you don't see this cross-culturally the way one would assume if it's just something innate about being male and female. So this notion that there are just more geniuses that are men does not seem to be supported by the data. But many people still hold on to this. And again, I really took this as um, some kind of scientific, if you want to say fact, as far as um, theories can go because I'd seen it so many times. And so she talks about the dangers of these things where because there are these theories that get thrown around and then they gain some support and then people are sharing them, it becomes part of our common knowledge or we take it as common knowledge when really it's not the case. Uh, so this idea that men are somehow better at math because of this reason that they stand out more does not seem to be true, but this permeates the communities, including the scientific community. And so they showed research that even when people were writing letters of recommendation, they were more likely for a man to say things like brilliant or other words that talk about somehow having some mental it factor. Um, whereas for women, it was more about just being consistent or working hard or being organized, more those types of qualities were acknowledged um, as opposed to their male counterparts. So we can see that as much as there isn't something explicitly that says women can't be in science, although 
um, even in the big scientific communities and organizations, a lot of times women were not uh, welcomed until well into the 20th century. But still, the environments are not exactly equal, meaning that they feel as good. And so, again, that's a big theme throughout this book is that when we're even looking at male and female brains, we have to be aware that because of the plasticity, the neuroplasticity that we now know exists for brains, that the environment we are in is going to have a big impact on those brains. So if you have a brain living, for example, in a lot of stress, and you compare it to one that doesn't have a lot of stress, they're going to look different, not because of something inherent about those two people, but because of the experiences that they have lived. That's going to impact them. And so we have to be very mindful and aware of all the different messages. And she shares um, some themes throughout the book about that, that we give to boys and girls from a very young age about what to play with, what not to play with, what they can be and what they can't be. What does a scientist look like? And she shares some research on that where children were asked to draw a scientist. And several decades ago, almost none of them drew a woman, but even still, much more of them draw a man when they think of scientists. So these things have an impact on what we think we can do and what we think we can't do. And then we can become in a way self-conscious of these things we should and shouldn't do. Um, sometimes I'll talk about things like men shouldn't cry, for example. This is something that gets ingrained in our heads and becomes almost natural. So you might just say, oh, no, he just doesn't cry. And to me, it's not actually because they wouldn't want to or they can't, but it's become so automatic to not do that. And so other things um, that we impose on women can have that same effect and even impact their brains. So as I mentioned at the end of the book, she talks about how she's not trying to say men and women can have no differences, that they're exactly the same, that they should be the same. But she's saying we have to be very aware of when we're looking at the research that we're more rigorous in how we evaluate it and not just say, oh, we found a difference. This is what it means. Um, first of all, we have to be aware that that difference, sometimes how big is it, how important is that? But then also be aware of how could this have been affected by the environments that men and women live in? What is the impact of that as well? So a really great book, um, lots of research on it. And she looks through a lot of research throughout history and evaluates it and gives great insights about it. And so I, I really enjoyed the book because of that, that it had this new perspective of thinking a lot more about the impact that the environment and the world is having on the brains that we are studying. So that was Gender and Our Brains by Gina Rapone. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, I wanted to talk a bit about parenting. It uh, was prompted by some observations I had um, out in public, so it wasn't with clients, but seeing the, the dynamic that happens between parents and kids. And there's no other way to put this, but at times, parents can act like dictators with their kids. And I've, I've talked about that before. And and urged parents to even be mindful of this, to have to, in a way, prove to themselves that they're not acting that way. And so the reason I'm bringing that is I saw a few families, and it wasn't anything extreme, so it wasn't like this was you know, some kind of extreme emotional abuse, but there was a feeling that the parents, in this case it was one mom and one dad, uh, different families, but they were relishing the power they had 
in being the parent and being the one that was making decisions that could say no and say yes and can say, you know what, because you did this, now we're not going to do that. Or if you're not going to have fun while we're here, then I'm going to make sure we go home and blah, blah, blah. So again, it wasn't something too extreme to me. It did rub me the wrong way and irked me. Um, but it was just so clear that the parents were relishing a little too much this power. We can all have power trips in different ways. But here we have a very extreme example of that because it's a constant. Sometimes you go somewhere and someone has a power trip with you for 20 minutes. But when you're a parent, it's 24 hours, seven days a week, and for years that you can have that. And so if we take a step back first, because some might say, well, you know, the parents have to have power and authority. And they do. So I, I don't think it's a clear democracy when you have parents and kids that everyone has exactly equal say. So if it's time to go to school and the kids say, let's stay home, that you just, okay, we're going to stay home. Um, or if the kids say, let's do this or do that or sell the house, you sell the house because the child told you to sell the house. You have to make the decisions. You have to be in charge of a lot of things. There definitely is a healthy differential that you have to maintain, even that you're not exactly friends. You can be very close with them, but you're not going to be their friend. You have to still have something there. So you do have this responsibility to have some authority as a parent. So some parents do go to the other extreme that the kids actually start to become dictators. So because the parents don't want to say no to the kid, they don't want to have conflict, they don't want to upset the child. This can relate to what I've talked about as the pain prevention philosophy of parenting. They don't want to have any no's in their house and they never want to do something the kid doesn't like. And so you actually can see that the child becomes a dictator. They say everything that happens, it doesn't happen. And the parents initially might have thought it, this was something good, but they're usually quite terrified of their kid now because they don't know how to handle him or her. And so now they're stuck. And so this is definitely not healthy either. The, the child should not become the dictator of the home and the parents have to maintain some level of authority, show that they can manage and handle things. And even the child needs that not just for the discipline part, but the child needs to feel like you can handle things. You can handle them. You can handle the world. You can make sure that they are okay. We even can see at times children will test the limits, not in just a manipulative way, but I remember one time hearing it in this way and I really liked it. It's like if you're in a home, an actual structure, and you want to make sure you're safe from the outside world, you might push against the walls to make sure the walls can keep you, right? If you pushed on the wall and it just fell over or you can push through it, you wouldn't feel very safe in that home. So when you push against the wall, you actually want the wall to be strong and not to bend or break and stay strong there. And so sometimes kids are testing the boundaries to make sure you will be there, to make sure you are strong, to make sure they are safe. So they actually need you to respond with strength and not just give in to everything they want every time or bend if they push hard enough. You have to actually be firm at times. So we need to have that. But what we have to make sure of is now back to that other extreme that I started with, that we don't relish in that. And even if we think about the mindset, yes, there is this power differential, absolutely, and there needs to be. But we should take it as, in a way, an honor that you have this, a responsibility 
that you have this rule. Not, oh, now I'm better than, now I feel so good to have this power. It's something in a way you're given that you have to be very careful with. And we always have to be careful with power. Um, there's that quote, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because if you have absolute power and you're not aware of it, if you're not mindful of some kind of checks and balances, you're going to inevitably abuse that power. And that's what can happen with parents. They have all the power. No one can question them. The only one who really questions them is the kid who's the one that doesn't have the power. So you can ignore it or say, no, I always know better. I'm the bigger one. I know. And so you can become very corrupted by this power and turn into a dictator. So you really have to check in with yourself and see, am I acting in this way with my child? Am I enjoying the power too much? Does it feel good? And even I can share from my own examples uh, or my own example. Recently, I've been thinking about the tutoring that I do um, on Thursdays I, with the organization School on Wheels. I do tutoring with children and I've noticed at times I can feel a little bit like I have, of course, I do have the power. I'm supposed to be the tutor and in some way give some kind of structure, but maybe it could affect how kind I even am to the kids. And I really did reflect on this. Was I, um, could I have been more kind? Was I a little bit short with that kid? And would I have done that with an adult? Maybe I wouldn't have. Maybe I was a little bit too short with him or with her. I don't remember exactly who it even was, but having some reflections on this and thinking, you know what? Maybe it's easier because I'm the adult to, in a way, take advantage of that and respond in a way because I do have, in a way, this power. And so I had to, to think about that and reflect on it and even be more mindful of how I was approaching that. So I can see how it's easy to go there because it could be a lot easier. And so a lot of times even parents that don't want to act um, as a dictator, they'll try to be very sensitive and caring and have conversations with their kids but sometimes when uh, metaphorically speaking push comes to shove then they use their power so they say hey you know let's try to do this what we're gonna leave in this time and this and this and then eventually they start using threats once they can't take it anymore i'm the mom and i said this is the way it's going to be or i'm the dad if you don't do it i'm going to do this to you now and so they use their authority their station their power to make something happen the way they want it to happen and it's going to happen with everyone. So I'm not saying you should never do that, um, but you want to limit the times that happens. So limit is really what we're looking at. It's kind of limits of power. And especially if you are married and have a co-parent together, you can keep each other in check about this. Really ask each other, talk to each other about this. Are there ways that we are acting in a dictator-like way with our kids? And when we think of mandated reporting, so as a psychologist, also teachers, doctors, other, um, some other professions, we're mandated reporters for certain vulnerable groups. Includes um, elderly, individuals over 65, um, dependent adults, meaning they're over 18, but in some way they need someone to take care of them. They're incapacitated in some way that requires someone to take care of them. And of course, children. And if you have any sign of child abuse, you have to make a report to make sure it's looked into. And in most countries, they have these. In the United States, we have it. In different states, sometimes it has a different name. Um, here in California, it's Department of Child and Family Services is going to look into the situation to make sure that kid is safe. 
because in a way we know that there's some people that are in a vulnerable position and children are definitely one of those groups, maybe the most vulnerable in some ways from a very young age, because we know that they can be, they're essentially in an environment where they might not be able to speak up for themselves. They might not be able to um, get help or seek help or even know something is wrong and do anything about it. So we, in a way, I don't want to say on, are on the lookout, but we are aware and looking out for them and advocating for them because we know that can happen. And so, again, coming back to how, as parents, we want to approach this. There's a power differential, absolutely. But you want to make sure your mindset, your approach is, I'm honored to have this. I'm given this position, and I don't want to abuse it. It's actually to me similar to politics. When people are elected officials, they're elected to serve the people. Now, of course, this is not what we see happening. Um, people very often go into politics to get power, to get money for usually the wrong reasons. I've actually was talking to Parham about this, that uh, I want to vote for president for someone who doesn't want to be president. And by that, I don't mean someone who's not qualified or who doesn't want to do it. But very often people who seek positions of power um, do so for the wrong reasons, not because they want to help and they want to serve. They want it to serve their own ego or to get something for themselves. It's not coming from a selfless space. It's coming from a selfish place. And unfortunately, that person given power is more likely to abuse it. But of course, if you give them absolute power or too much power, it's not checked in some ways, it's going to get even worse. So I see this also in politics. If you have some position, you should feel honored to get to serve in that capacity. Yes, it might give you some authority over certain things, certain people, the power to do certain things, but you're doing it not for yourself. You're doing it for everyone and you're given that position, but that's it. And so politics is one place, but anywhere in life, okay, you are a manager and you're managing some people at your company. You don't look down at those people you're managing or think it makes you better than them. Yes, you have to be uh, using that authority to manage things, um, a little redundant there to make them go better, but you're using that because it's for the good overall, not because you get to feel good using that power. So here you have that uh, station, but it's only something that's given to you to then serve to use it in some way. And so I used to go to this camp, and I remember the, one of the first times I went to the camp, and I was going to be a counselor, so working with the kids. And I think I was like 18, 19, and I felt kind of cool, and it's exciting. And you do feel like, oh, I'm going to have a few kids in my cabin, and I get to be kind of like the counselor and the head of them. But I remember the person who was running the camp, he said, so, so you know, all of us that were there were the staff, essentially, for the camp. He said, we're all servants to these kids. And it was a little bit of a, um, a surprise because... Here we thought we're kind of cool and we're the ones with the power, but he called us servants. And he didn't mean servant in this low way, unfortunately, we can think about it. He meant that we're serving these kids. We're there in the service of the children to give them the best experience that we can give them, um, to have the best time, to learn. Maybe we'll serve as a role model. Sure, it'll feel good if they think we're cool or they like us. It might feel good, but that shouldn't be our purpose, our intention to get them to like us, to use the power. And so that stuck with me is that mindset that we're being servants, we're serving. And so as parents, you are the ones with the power, 
but I would hope that it has that same mindset that you are actually in service of your children, not that your servants, that you're beneath them, but definitely they're not your servants and you're not above them either. And if anything, you owe them and they don't owe you. So if we can switch the mindset from a dictator to a servant, and I'm a parent who serves my kids rather than a parent who has all the power, you'll probably feel much better and your kids will too. You are their parent. You have the responsibility. You have the authority to do lots of things. But these are gifts that were given to you just like your children are gifts that were given to you. And your role is to serve them, to help them, to be there for them. Whatever power you have should be power that is used for good, not power to make yourself feel good. And power can be very addicting. It can feel good. It feels nice to have power and control over a situation. And this is why we have to keep ourselves in check. As I said, if you have a partner, keep each other in check. Be aware of, okay, are we acting in a way that's like dictators? Are we being aware that I'm actually a servant to my kids? I'm there to be there for them. And by servant, it doesn't mean you have to be abused or sacrifice everything. You'd have to take care of yourself for yourself, but also because the stronger and the better you are, the more you can be there for their kids. So I don't want to paint the picture of the martyr, but you are there in service for them. So just a reminder that as parents, it's easy to turn into a dictator, but if we can shift that mindset into the mode of serving, of being a servant to your children. Um, and I think that's the right way to go. Well, we're here at the end of the show. The book of the week for this week is Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Born a Crime, stories from a South African childhood. Really looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. All right, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio as always. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dwakwi. Have a wonderful night.